The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Women and Sport, The Long Road Up, with host Carol Oglesby. This program explores the historical roots that women's sport has taken in the past half century, from light competition to collegiate, professional, and Olympic sports today. Now, here is your host, Carol Oglesby. Greetings, everyone, to show number three in this 13-week series, Women and Sport, The Long Road Up. You know, we live in a world where media and social media is filled with super women, super men, X-Men, Storm. But best of all, I think there are very human heroines and heroes that just walk among us. And we have just such a person with us today, marathon woman, Catherine Switzer. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today. We will, over the course of this hour, learn a lot about you, but let me begin by asking a really simple question to just get us rolling. Um, Why are you nicknamed Marathon Woman, and is that your favorite nickname, or is there one you actually like better? Well, Carol, thank you so much for having me on this show, Uh, and all congratulations for what you're doing for women's sports. You have spent your whole life. Um, campaigning and championing the cause of women in sports. And now uh, I'm delighted to hear you doing this fantastic um, uh, broadcast. This is really, really wonderful, and I'm delighted to be here. Well, am I called Marathon Woman for a reason? Well, I suppose it's because it's the title of my book, and I swear to you that's not a commercial <laughs> right up front. But Commercials are okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> My book is is entitled Marathon Woman, but um, I would say ever since you know I ran the Boston Marathon in 1967, and and uh, have been running ever since. You know, people just say, "Yeah, well, she's the Marathon Woman" because I've always been around for so long. Well, it's a good name, a, a well earned name. Um, let's start with your beginnings. Now, um, how did you actually get into sports? Was it a family thing? Who encouraged you, discouraged you? Uh, how, how did you get started into this, uh, what used to be n- not so popular uh, an engagement for women? You know, I, I am so, so lucky. When, I, when I'm out talking about empowerment and how fabulous that we are on the Empowerment Network, I love this. Um, I, I often say, I look back and think, if it hadn't been for my dad one night at the, at the dinner table telling me to run an a mile a day, I mean, my life would have been completely different, I'm sure. Um, and this is what happened, is is I was a young, uh, prepubescent kid heading into high school at age 12. So I was way ahead of myself, and also there were no middle schools in those days. So high school was grade 8. And I really wanted to be a high school cheerleader because, that, to me, that was like being pretty and popular. Uh, and I, you know, I didn't have a hope in hell of becoming a high school cheerleader. But anyway, um, I told my parents at dinner that night that I was going to try out for the team. And without missing a beat, my father said, you don't want to cheer for other people. People should cheer for you. And the game is on the field. And you should play 
on something new that your your high school has, which is a field hockey team for girls. How lucky we were, you know, back in the in 1960 or whatever it was, um, to have a field hockey team. And I and he and I said I couldn't I couldn't make that team. And he said, Sure, you could. All you have to do is run a mile a day to get in shape to do it. Now, my dad wasn't an athlete, but he was a big army colonel, um, and he was making the troops go out and run every day, that kind of thing. And so he he saw. This, this conservative guy uh, saw that the mile a day would be very beneficial to an insecure little kid who needed to, to belong to something, you know, to, to have some sense of achievement. So I went out and ran the mile a day. I made the field hockey team. Um, and that is what gave me, you know, the empowerment and the confidence to go on and, and become a runner. It was amazing. Oh, I love that. I love that. I'm I'm sure that hardly anybody knows that you had a field hockey start. Uh, that will be a bit. That will be a big surprise. Um, what about running distances? Was that? Uh, I mean, starting with a mile. That was pretty ambitious, right? Right there. But uh, when we get into, you know, half miles and uh, I mean, uh, ten thousand meters and then marathons. Uh, when when did you start thinking about distance? I started thinking about distance um, pretty much right away because a mile, of course, in those days seemed like Kilimanjaro, um, you know, climbing it every day. <laughs> yeah. And it seemed like an enormous distance, but then my dad measured off our yard. It was seven laps, and um, I struggled through it, but I could do it. And, and, and you know, basically a, 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 um, a reasonably healthy child should be able to easily jog a mile. I mean, it's not far, really. Um, and um, so I just jogged through it. He said, it's only about doing it. It's not about going fast. And what I realized is that if I didn't have to go fast, I could I could go for a long time. And I loved that because speed never interested, it, interested me, but the, the concept of how far my body could go was fascinating. So... I started with this mile a day, and then I played field hockey, I played basketball, but I, I always ran that mile a day anyway as, as sort of, um, how can I put this? It was a victory under my belt every day nobody could take away from me. So it wasn't just about running. It was about the way a young girl felt about herself. She was feeling powerful, empowered, and that I could take on other other things. And I felt, well, if a mile is good, two miles is going to be better. And I don't know anybody who runs three. So if I could get up to three, I'm going to be king of the hill. (laughs) (laughs) So when I started with the the three miles, um, you know, I I went to Syracuse University, and and it was there that I, I met a guy who was a marathoner. And he was the guy who ignited, ignited my soul for running distance. Was, what, did your, what did your dad think about, uh, did, did you, do you think you surprised him when you started stacking on mile after mile after mile? My father um, used to tease me. Um, you know, he, he, he knew I was a, sort of a pathological optimist. <laughs> he said, you know, there, there are children in the world that if you took them into a a room of horse manure, they would say there's a pony here someplace. And I was always that kind of kid. Um, and um, he saw that um, I was running and then running more. And I think he knew that, that this is something I felt I, I was very proud of. You know, I was very, very, I, my confidence just grew every day. And I think every parent um, is thrilled when they see a child take on um, um, self-esteem, challenge themselves, 
he saw that I organized my time better, that I had better grades, that I, I focused, I, um, uh, I wasn't afraid of adventure. And all of those are wonderful things to give to somebody. Yeah. And a simple mile a day is, is magic when it does that. My mom was also extremely encouraging because, um, and a good role model for me because she both worked and had a professional career as well as, um, as was a super mom. Um, and in many ways that was a detriment because I've never been able to live up to that. But, um, it, it was, um, it, they were both extremely proud of me. Um, and when I became then competitive, I think that they um, almost had some regrets that they didn't do more in terms of finding me coaching. I was just doing this on my own. Mm-hmm. And when I, I didn't have a coach really for running until I was, uh, until I was 20. Wow. Um, my colleague, whom you know, historian Jamie Schultz, found 13 women who had crashed assorted men's distance races. Uh, were you aware of any women before you who had tried to run the Boston? Yes, definitely. Definitely. I was aware um, when I was, uh, hold, I was uh, 18, 19, no, 19, 19, a, a guy I was dating at a small southern school, uh, he was on the track and cross country team, and, and I, in fact, had been recruited on. I had been recruited onto the men's team to run the mile. Now it wasn't because I was any good. It was really because um, because they needed the points and didn't have enough men. So I said to the coach, "Sure, I'll, I'll be happy to run the mile." And I, I don't know. If I, I certainly was one of the first women to ever run on a men's team, so, and I found a wonderful welcome from these men. I'm, I've got to tell you that it was terrific. It was Lynchburg College in Lynchburg, Virginia. Well, one of the guys on the team um, I w- had been dating went up to run the Boston Marathon, and I was so impressed when I heard about an event that was 26 miles, 385 yards. And so when he came back, I said, "How did you do?" And he said. Not bad. I ran a, um, a 3.45. And I said, wow, I think that's pretty terrific. And I said, did any girls run? And he said, yes. Uh, this woman uh, started at, uh, somewhere, you know, somewhere near the start. You know, she, she apparently jumped out of the bushes. Her name was Roberta Gibb. And she ran the race. And I said, and what time did she do? And he said, well, I heard she ran around the 3.20. And I never forget what I said. I said, you let a girl beat you? <laughs> oh, oh, ouch, ouch, ouch. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? But what it showed me, um, you know, was I didn't realize, I didn't realize that the Boston Marathon, that was a big deal. Okay, I didn't realize, I thought, well, a, a woman has done it, you know, I wasn't, you know, I just, I was impressed, but I, but I was, uh, I didn't, I just sort of said, oh, okay, great, women can run too. Um, so I, I didn't have any sense that, there was something wrong with a woman running in the marathon. I hadn't, I just hadn't heard about it. So, um, yes, and, and, but I hadn't heard about women like Julia Brand Chase. I didn't hear about her running, uh, in the, uh, races, uh, the shorter races in Massachusetts where she had a hard time from the officials because m- m- in my experience, I had been, I had been welcomed. You see, the officials in Lynchburg, Virginia welcomed me into the race. Mm. So uh, it seems like when you registered for Boston in 1967, you did not really have a clear understanding of what would happen out there. So that whole furor that occurred on the race course, was that something of a surprise, a lot of surprise? A total 
surprise. It was a total surprise. So let me kind of walk you through it, which is that um, after I ran on the men's track team at Lynchburg College, I didn't think it was any big deal for a girl to run um, in, in a men's domain, if you see what I mean. Yes. Uh, it was unusual. It was unusual, certainly at Lynchburg. They made a big fuss about it, but it was mostly positive. And, um, and, and, but I knew it was unusual. I just thought other women weren't interested. You know, I didn't know that there were things preventing them. This is my naivety, okay? One thing, of course, I did know is that the longest event in the Olympic Games at that time was, um, uh, uh, let's see, yes, it was the 800 meters. Um, they didn't, they didn't have, no, they had just put the 800 meters back into the Olympic Games. So the longest event in the Olympic Games was the 800 meters. Um, and, uh, and I was frustrated that the AAU and the Olympics didn't provide longer distances for women. Uh, because I knew the longer I ran, the better I was. Sure. So it was when I transferred to Syracuse University, which I did to study journalism because I wanted to be a sports writer, um, that I went to the men's track coach and cross-country coach and asked if I could run on the men's team because there weren't any women's sports at, Lynch, at Syracuse, if you can imagine that. Um, you know, no hockey, no lacrosse, you know, <laughs> no basketball, no running. Um, but the men had full scholarships. And I thought, how strange this is that the women don't have any sports. And the men not only have a proliferation of sports, but they have enormous and fruitful scholarships. Well, anyway, I asked the men's cross-country coach if I could run on the men's team. And he said I, I was welcome to come work out with the team, but I couldn't run officially because it was against NCAA rules. And I said, well, okay, because really all I want to do is train anyway, because I was frustrated with running, you know, 400 and 800 meters on the track. So I began running with the men's cross-country team. And a volunteer coach who was 50 years old at the time, so I was 19 and he was 50, he had been helping the, the men's cross-country team for, you know, 30 years. And um, he was an ex-marathoner. And he felt sorry for me because I was slow. And he would run with me every day and tell me stories about the Boston Marathon because it was the greatest day in his life and it made him feel like a hero. And as I just sort of, the weeks passed and I heard story after story. He'd run 15 Boston Marathons and pretty soon I, I was just in love with the concept of the race and, and really wanted to do it. When I told him I wanted to do it, he didn't believe any woman anywhere had run a marathon, even though by that time I knew other women in history had run, run them. Not many six, eight, um, and that, that Roberta Gibb had run Boston the year before, uh, he just didn't believe a woman could do it. He believed women were too weak and too fragile, and we argued and argued, and finally he relented and said that if I could prove to him in practice by showing him that I could cover the distance, he would take me to Boston. And so I was so excited, and the day came. We ran the distance. In fact, I didn't think we had run long enough, and I said, let's run five more miles. We ran 31 miles. And he passed out at the end of the workout. And he was so convinced. <laughs> he was so convinced about my ability, he helped me register for the race. And that, that was the crunch point. Okay? Wow. That was the crunch point. Well, I think uh, most people know about, uh, to, to at least some extent, what happened uh, as um, one of the race officials who shall go unnamed here, although I will have to tell you that I will never forget that man's name. Um, he tried to belt, he tried to grab your numbers and um, a friend that you were running with 
made it so he was not able to do that and you finished the race. Um, but so what was the aftermath? My understanding is that you were in some hot water, in quotes, uh, for a while, at least with some officials or governing bodies. Is that correct? Absolutely. But, Carol, you know, you, you kind of make light of the, the biggest moment in this whole story, which is that I'm running down the road wearing my bib numbers with my teammates. who were all very proud of ourselves. And two miles into the race, the official leapt from the press truck and attacked me in the race tried to rip off my bib numbers and throw me out of the race. And, and it was a terrible, terrible moment. Um, and his name, I'll tell you his name because you're going to laugh when I tell you the rest of the story, but his name was Jock Semple. He was co-race director. He was a man of a, a, a very short fuse. He didn't suffer fools. And he thought I was making a mockery of his race by registering for it. And, of course, my coach was screaming, saying, you know, she's serious, and if you're serious in the Boston Marathon, you have to sign up. And there was nothing in the rules about gender. There was nothing on the entry form or even in the rule book about gender. It was understood that it was a men's only race. So here I was, happy as, as a clam, running along, um, and then the official attacks me, and all hell breaks loose, and I was scared and terrified and humiliated. But I made the, the important decision to finish the race. Um, and, and the reason this has become a famous incident is because the attack happened in front of the press truck. And so the pictures of this incident were flashed around the world. In fact, they, they were around the world before I even finished the race. So I went on, made the decision to, to finish this race, come hell or high water. I was really, really determined um, because I knew now that it had become a political situation where this official was trying to throw me out because I was a woman or that had registered, um, and that if I didn't finish the race, people would just confirm this official's belief. I had to finish the race. Um, and there's a lot of pressure for a 20-year-old girl. You know, it was my first big race, um, and um, I went through all of the agonies you go through in a marathon, including, you know, the, the, the lifetime of experience of thinking through things and realizing that this old official was just a product of his time and that um, I had to finish and prove to the world that women could do this and should be allowed to do this. So by the time I finished the race, um, I often say I had grown up an awful lot, um, but I was, I was certainly, certainly a changed person. And yes, indeed, the controversy was unbelievable. It was, uh, I was DQ'd from the race and I was expelled from the amateur athletic union and uh, set up a whole stream of, um, of, of argumentative uh, <laughs> pros and cons. But I know wow. you're going to get ready for a break here, so I, I'll tell the rest of the story later. Absolutely. Don't, don't leave us in suspense for very long because I want to know how this turned out. Um, we're going to take a short break now. We'll come back. We'll talk about not only the end of the, and the aftermath of the Boston, but also um, getting marathon in the Olympic Games. This is Women in Sport, The Long Road Up on Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate, change, succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. 
Carol Oglesby has a documented commitment to performance enhancement and development of positive embodiment along the full age and ability spectrum. She has created sport community-based programs that empower, educate, motivate in a sports plus model. She has worked with elite athletes who have experienced injury, burnout, and challenged relationships with coaches and teammates. She is a life coach dedicated to aid in the rediscovery of clarity, purpose, and joy in clients. Call Carol today at 818-324-2957. That's 818-324-2957. We go through all kinds of challenges in life. How we deal with them is a different story. If we carry them on our shoulders, we can experience health problems, relationship issues, and other negative aspects these challenges can pose. Jeanette Abney's Precious Predicaments is here to help you pick up and sort out the pieces through education and encouragement. You don't have to live in fear and pain. Let's find solutions together. Precious Predicaments is heard live every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Build your better business. Achieve that goal. Make good on that resolution. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. You are tuned in to Women and Sport, The Long Road Up. To reach Carol Oglesby or her guest today, please call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Now back to this week's show. Welcome back. We're speaking with Catherine Switzer, whose photo Time Life magazine dubbed one of the 100 that changed the world. Um, so, Catherine, you're just giving us a little bit of the a feeling for what happened after that incredible race. So uh, tell us the story. You know, I, I often say that after uh, in a marathon, you kind of go through a lifetime of experiences. And, and um, the next 24 miles after this official attacked me, I, I kind of was going through why did this happen and, 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 and um, why aren't women in, in sports and why aren't there longer events in the Olympics and why don't we have scholarships and, and, and why uh, would anybody want to forbid a woman from running a marathon? And, and, and then I remembered all the old myths, you know, that we're going to get big legs and grow hair in our chest and, you know, turn into men, not have babies. Um, and, 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 and thinking maybe that's the reason why women aren't here is because they're afraid. <laughs> they're afraid of all those old myths, and they're afraid of people shouting at them, they're afraid of people pushing them around, and no wonder they're not here. So it was like a eureka moment, and sometimes this comes to you, you know, when you're on an endorphin overload or you're in, in an endurance race. I often get my best ideas when I'm out for a long run. But by the time I finished the race, I, I really felt resolved and enlightened at the same time. I was resolved to make change. Um, and um, both to become a better athlete and to create opportunities. Um, and, and I felt really enlightened about the fact that there were so many women out there. I was utterly convinced about women having so much potential, uh, so much ability, um, and they just lacked the opportunity. And I was determined to create that opportunity and to, to make running significant for them. Uh, and I'm proud I was able to do that. And, and in fact, it wound up being not only my life's passion, but even a career. 
Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, I think your description leads us so perfectly into um, sort of another chapter of your life that is so fascinating and so empowering. Um, you're giving us a little clue as to when you developed uh, the concept of getting women into the Olympic Games, the, the marathon into the Olympic Games. But I, I have always been impressed with the fact that you really launched, uh, it was like a high-level military campaign. It was beautiful, I thought, anyway, all the different avenues that you took to uh, to complete the advocacy. So uh, tell us a little bit about that overall strategy. How did you get the sense of how to do this, how to get the IOC um, not exactly a bastion of uh, change, especially at that time? How, how did you see yourself being able to accomplish this? Well, okay. First of all, I am an optimistic person, and I believe generally in the in in the capability of women in a huge way. So, so that was number one. The num- number two was that um, I would go through my life experiences, and I would say, "Why is this happening?" And if it's a negative, you turn it upside down, and you think of if there's a negative, then there must be a positive that would solve it. So if women are not running because they're afraid, what is going to make them unafraid? And I realized that what the simplest, a very simple answer to that is you give them the opportunity to run or participate in an environment that is not intimidating um, and is welcoming. So I began organizing events. And, um, and so this is before my dream with the IOC, okay? And, and began organizing clubs and then uh, campaigning along with other women in Boston in particular to get official status in the Boston Marathon. Uh, and that was really hard. That took five years of campaigning and, and sort of legal work to prove that women should be allowed to run in the Boston Marathon. We were running very well by that time, and now there were a lot of women running. It became kind of a cause celeb. The, the the media was all on it. We were running, as I say, running well. So finally, um, the AAU and the Boston Athletic Association um, voted to allow women to run officially in 1972. Now, immediately after that moment, um, a uh, a uh, consumer goods company, I won't name who it was, a consumer goods company um, came to us, uh, uh, Fred Lebo and me, and Nina Cusick, and said, hey, you just got women official in Boston. Why don't we create a women's only marathon in New York City? Well, we, we sat down and thought about it, and we thought, well, gosh, there are only like six or eight of us in the, in the U.S. right now who can run a marathon. It's not going to be a successful promotion for this consumer company. Uh, why don't we convince them to do a 10,000-meter race, a 10K around Central Park, um, and call it a mini-marathon. And that way we'll get a lot of women and it'll be successful and won't drag out over hours and hours and hours. And so the company will get their you know, their pound of flesh and, and we'll have our first women's-only race. Well, it turned out to be very successful, a, a, a really big, great product launch for this company. And what did I learn from that? Well, what I learned from that is that, that a consumer goods company can write the check to make an event happen. And I'd been out going to use car dealers to get trophies, but now I saw, wait a minute, this is a bigger deal. Okay, well, 72, 1972 was also a huge year for women. As you know, in June, now this was in May, the race. 
April was the Boston Marathon. Okay, May was the women's race. June, President Nixon signed into law uh, Title IX Amendment to the Constitution, which eventually changed the landscape for women, not only in education, but in sports. So that happened in, in, in June. Then in August was the Olympic Games. And in Munich. And I went over to Munich. I thought I was going to try now to get some uh, traction with the International Olympic Committee to get the marathon in the Olympic Games. So, of course, they had just voted in a 1,500 meters. So they thought I was smoking poppy to go <laughs> yeah, from a 1,500 absolutely. meters to uh, a marathon. You have got to be crazy. But I wanted to go to Munich to tr- just to to get my voice in there to make the cause known, you know, that I'm serious here. I also was a journalist, and, and I, uh, this is my first big journalism opportunity in, in running and in sports, and the, it was after all the Olympics. And Anyway, so I went over as a, as a little freelance journalist, um, and, of course, it was a shattering experience when the Israeli athletes were assassinated. Um, and I certainly learned that sports was highly politicized and that often athletes were very minor players in this game. And um, I was really now getting some hard-nosed realities in my face. And I'll never forget one night I walked out of the press room um, and I looked up at the skyline and I said, what is going to make the difference for the women? And uh, and how are we going to ever get this into the Olympic Games? I looked up at this, this, the skyline around the Olympic Stadium in the night, and I saw Deutsche Bank, Mercedes-Benz, Coca-Cola, Kodak Film, IBM. And I said, that's what's going to make the difference. Yeah, I'm going to right. go home, and I'm going to write a proposal um, to a business company, a big company, and I'm going to make women's running uh, sponsored and glamorous, create events, put it on TV, and make these events um, welcoming, not intimidating, but also of a world-class standard so that nobody could say that this is just fun and games, that these are, are done correctly and up to, up to um, IOC standards. And I wrote a proposal to Avon Cosmetics. They loved the idea. I mean, it was really scary. Again, the longest event in the Olympic Games is 1,500 meters. We began putting on races all over the world because it was a big multinational. Um, and, you know, it's amazing. Build it and they'll come. And women, for the first time in many countries, Japan, Philippines, Brazil, Canada, you know, Germany, for the first time ever had an opportunity to go out, run in a women's only race, regardless of their age or ability or, or size, and participate in something that was wholly good and fun, as well as competitive as they wanted to be competitive. Um, and we began stacking up the data, the numbers, the performances, the distances. We did 5,000, 10,000, half marathons, 30Ks, 20Ks, 15Ks, and every year we had a marathon done on a world-class standard, um, and we took that data to the International Olympic Committee, who required active participation 
from 24 countries and three continents at the time. And in our race in London, we had 27 countries and five continents. So now we had the data, the performances, the international representation. The last piece was some medical evidence, which we got from really good doctors who were adamant that women had innate capability in endurance and stamina. Of course, we don't have the speed, the power, the strength, the size, but we have, we can go forever. And so the marathon was something that was really uniquely suited for women. And, uh, and it took a lot of lobbying with the IOC, with every single athletic federation in each of those countries, piece by piece, with each federation, and got them on side to, to help with the vote. Uh, and of course, the big, the big game changer was the, the games were in Los Angeles. Um, and the Los Angeles Olympic Organizing Committee loved the idea of, of making this happen and so helped us um, meet the right people and proposed it to the board of directors of the IOC and voted in the Women's Marathon in 1981 for the 1984 Games. So we leapt from 1,500 meters right to the marathon, um, and they voted in the 3,000 as well, but they did not vote in the 5,000 and the 10,000. They voted, so it went right to the marathon. Now, people say, why in the world wouldn't they have included the 5 and the 10? Clearly, if you can run a marathon, you can run 5,000 meters or 10,000 meters. But the the seriousness of this is is real, which is you start adding a a whole bunch of events like that, you've got to be looking at the transportation, the feeding, the housing of all these extra athletes for these extra events. So, and also... If the U.S. is asking for these events, that other countries are going to want to include theirs. You know, the marathon came with also the Russians getting rhythmic gymnastics. And um, that's okay. Uh, unfortunately, the Russians boycotted, <laughs> boycotted the games in, in Los Angeles. But there are trade-offs. That's what I'm saying. It's a, it, it turned out to be quite political. Well, as you um, said, and, the, and a, yeah, a lot the of politics. Helped me. You know, you guys did in the in and the uh, Women's Sports Foundation, Donna Deverona. There were many players who helped me uh, with this politically. Well, I know that you uh, the the effort to get the medical and uh, uh, medical people uh, groups like the Women's Sports Foundation. You published uh, some a lot of uh, material b- books uh, to highlight that there was a history already of women who had done these kinds of things. Um, were there any? Did you have any real? like pitfall disappointments leading up to that 1981 vote, or did it always look like it was shaping in the right direction? Oh, my gosh, Terrell. <laughs> Too many to name. the road was a pitfall. Um, yeah. I, couldn't, I just couldn't believe it. You know, when, um, when I would meet with some Federation people, for instance, they would think that we were bringing, you know, a 10,000-meter road race uh, for women into their city, that it was surely a joke. You know, you can't be serious. The women will not show up for this. And one head of one a South American country said, said a big country. I won't tell you which one it was, but anyway, he said, he said, you know, your race is not going to be successful, and I will not have my wife join me. I have to show up. I know because I'm head of the federation, uh, and I will not permit my daughter to participate. And he said, you probably have 150, you know. Um, women, you know, kind of derogatory, you know, like unfeminine women, he said, uh, show up. Well, we had something like 10,000 women show up. 
Wow. And, you wow. know, uh, yeah, you cannot, my husband jokes, he said you can't ignore 10,000 women running through the streets <laughs> of the major city. Um, <laughs> and it's true. <laughs> but, Carol, here's where you be, be, you have to be a political uh, player. You turn to the head of the Federation and you say, you were fantastic to come today. We just couldn't have had the success without you. Um, and I know you're going to support us when we try to get the women's events in the Olympic Games. Um, because he's not an idiot. He looks like a hero. He's on TV. You know, he's got um, a really good sports promotion going on in his country. So, you know, you have to shake people a little bit and wake them up. And, um, but then he came around, and that vote was very important. Very yeah, important. Absolutely. Uh, well, let's. Uh, we've just got a couple of minutes in this segment. I uh, want to talk a second about uh, the 1984 marathon run itself. I want to share with you, I was a spectator in the stands at the L.A. Coliseum, and so I saw Joan, Joan Benoit break out of the entrance tunnel and into the sunlight for that last lap, and the crowd roar was unbelievable. Um, where were you when, when the 1984 marathon was run? Were you doing... Uh, commentating? I, I can't remember. Yeah, I was doing television commentary with yeah. Al Michaels and Marty LaCroix for the first ever women's marathon in 1984 at that Games, and um, I was trying very, very hard to be um, impartial, um, and to be a journalist, um, not to, you know, I, I talk about myself or my programs and, and my history with getting the, the, the race to happen. I was just trying to be the straight person. Um, I got to tell you, when, when Joan uh, Benoit and now Joan Benoit Samuelson went into that tunnel um, and came out of the tunnel, I, I just was trying to keep it together because I was feeling very, very emotional. Um, as it turned out, Al Michaels uh, had said, you know, in the, in the previous commercial break, he said, when she hits the tunnel, um, let's let the crowd take it, uh, which I thought was one of the most dramatic moments ever. Um, and, of course, we just let the crowd take it. And as you know, the roar was deafening, deafening. But, Carol, the important thing is, is that more important than those 90,000 people in that Olympic stadium, and what a joy that you were there to see that, um, were, the, were the nearly 2 billion people that watched it on television. Because every country in the world knows that 26.2 miles or 42.2 kilometers is a long race. And here were women running it, and running it extremely well. And that did, uh, I think, that television broadcast um, to the world showed the world uh, the limitlessness of women's heroic capability. And to me, it was, this, it was this, the, the physical equivalent of giving women the right to vote. And that changed attitudes everywhere in the world. Everywhere. Well, it's time for our last break now. You're listening to Women in Sport, The Long Road Up on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. Carol Oglesby has a documented commitment to performance enhancement and development of positive embodiment along the full age and ability spectrum. She has created sport community-based programs that empower, educate, motivate in a sports plus model. She has worked with elite athletes who have experienced injury, burnout, and challenged relationships with coaches and teammates. She is a life coach dedicated to aid in the rediscovery of clarity, purpose, and joy in clients. Call Carol today at 888-888. 
818-324-2957. That's 818-324-2957. Are you ready for a health, life, and empowerment show in one? Then be sure to listen every week for Living Well with Ann Beal. Ann takes her long-running TV show to the Internet Talk Radio Airwaves with guest experts and insight designed to help you live a healthy and successful life. By hearing from the experts and those who have found success, our goal is that you too will be motivated to do the same. Living Well with Ann Beal can be heard every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. You are tuned in to Women and Sport, The Long Road Up. To reach Carol Oglesby or her guest today, please call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Now back to this week's show. Welcome back, everyone. We're talking with Catherine Switzer, one of the most empowered persons on earth, and she's found a new way to empower many of us. We're going to find out about that in just a moment, but I want to finish up one little detail about the 1984 marathon, the first time that women were able to run the marathon in the Olympic Games. Um, There was some doubt about whether Joan Benoit now Samuelson was going to be able to run that race. Um, She had an operation very close in to the event itself. So, um, and I often wondered what would have happened if Joan would not have been able to run that race. Were there other people who, other women who would have been able to step up and and, and get good time um, for the marathon? So maybe, um, Catherine, just give us a little insight into that little drama. Well, it was such a drama. Joan Benoit, um, you know, the American record holder, um, she had a knee problem right before, 17 days before our Olympic trials. And she had arthroscopic surgery 17 days before the Olympic trials, and she ran the Olympic trials and won them in, in a very, very smart race. And, and everybody was sort of in tears, like, oh, my God, how did she do that? And, and she was in, incredibly fit um, and then did a lot of rehab really fast, but it was still sort of a miracle. Nevertheless, Everybody in the world knew that she had had this knee surgery, and um, she was not the favorite in the race. And in my opinion, you know, it was going to be Ingrid Christensen from Norway, who had the current world record holder, no injury problems, was an ace on a flat course, um, and Greta Bites, of course, who was running very, very well, too. Um, and and what happened in the Olympic marathon is, is that Joan, at 5K, just took the race by the throat and tore away from the whole field. And all of us thought that this was a terrible mistake. You know, you just don't do that, A, in the Olympics, and B, you don't do it in the marathon. You don't run solo like that. Um, And so, wisely, Ingrid and Greta held back. Joan went on and went on and went on, and suddenly we realized she was going to keep it together. And at the moment that Greta Weitz and Ingrid realized that this was serious, Greta made her move, but... um, as she said later, she said the train had left the station, and and she couldn't catch it. There just wasn't enough real estate, and she finished in you know, a second. Now, I often think that typically in a marathon, if you do that, you go out really fast like that, the person who holds back, you know, uh, tortoise in the hair, the person who holds back and takes their time and works their way up usually wins, and 
And if Greta Weiss had won that race, everybody would say, she ran the smartest race in the world. But she, she did run the smartest race in the world, but it just didn't work on the day. <laughs> because Joan Benoit was unstoppable. And the great, and the, on, the, on the day, the greatest athlete and the greatest competitor. I don't think anybody I've ever met is more competitive and more, um, really more fit than Joan Benoit Sanderson. Even today now, well into her 50s, she's setting age group records. She's just phenomenal. But that race was very, very dramatic. Wow, that's for sure. And you were really, uh, I can't believe, I think you should get, have get, gotten some kind of journalistic award for being um, objective in a sense when it was like your baby was being born right there in front of your eyes and you were acting like it was somebody else's kid. Pretty amazing. <laughs> well, yes, okay. You know what? There was, there was another moment that, was, 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 that, that scared me uh, out of my mind. And that is, is that, um, later, Gabriel Anderson from Switzerland came in with heat stroke and struggled around the stadium. And we were just getting ready to go off the air. And we decided, ABC decided that they couldn't miss this juicy bit of drama. And they, they stayed on her for six minutes as she struggled and struggled around the track. And it was grotesque and upsetting. Um, um, and of course it was heroic. It was very heroic. But all I could think about was at that moment, my God, we have now got the women's marathon, the Olympic Games. Now we're having a, a collapse on the race. They're, they're dramatizing it. Are they going to now pull the event from the Olympic Games like they did in the 1928 Olympics when they pulled the 800 meters? Because they said women are too fragile, too weak, and incapable. Is it now going to set us back? Instead, you know, when she finished, the crowd erupted again. Oh, my God, she was a great heroine. Um, and, and in the papers, the next day they covered her press conference, and it was a matter of, of severe heat exhaustion, but there she was um, showing up at a press conference, and, uh, and she was made to be a hero. But, whoa, you know, in a different era, they probably would have pulled the event. So, right, right. <laughs> I must tell you, after that broadcast, I went back to my hotel room and I just lay there and I said, I, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen now. <laughs> For sure. Well, okay, let's hear the story behind this new foundation that you've created. created. Um, who, if others, are in it with you and what is it doing? Just uh, give us the story with, uh, with Fearless. You know, I mentioned several times in, in our whole interview that running makes you feel fearless. We all know that. And that the reason women don't, didn't participate early in the marathon or early in the events because they were fearful. And the more you, you run and participate, the more fearless you feel. And that's what way I grew up feeling when I, my dad had me running that mile a day. So I always knew if I could only create the opportunities for women that they would have the sense of fearlessness. Well, now there are more women runners in the United States than men. Same in Canada, same in France. It's in this, the, the women running, road running and distance running is becoming quickly the domain of women, not because uh, they want to be elite athletes. It's because A, they're good at endurance and B, they feel empowered. What we need to do is take the sense of fearlessness though to women who are fearful and that there are 
most of the women in the world still live in a fearful situation. And we know that from the Mideast, North Africa, through poverty, through culture, through, through, through religion, all kinds of issues. Uh, and really, if we could only, only use the vehicle of running to reach them, we could really change their lives in a powerful way. And at the moment I was beginning to feel this, this is about five years ago, feeling that we still had so much to do to, to change women's lives in a positive way, I began receiving pictures of people wearing my old bib number from the Boston Marathon on their back, um, the one that the official tried to pull off of me, and they kept writing to me and saying, this number makes me feel fearless. It was number 261. And it, uh, to me, it had always been just digits. But to these people, it symbolized overcoming adversity, facing a difficult situation when you're attacked in a race and you go ahead and you finish anyway. And they were thinking, obviously, you know, running has changed my life because we've all, we've all felt unwelcome or incapable or afraid of things, but we do it anyway and then we're, we're fearless. So, um, with, with this, this stuff bombarding me, I went to some friends of mine who are empowered running women, um, and I said, listen, this is happening. I don't, really don't know what to do with it. And everybody said, well, you can create a business, or you can do this, or you can create that. Or, but clearly, it was becoming a movement. And what we decided to do was to create um, 261 Fearless, Inc., a nonprofit charity where we're using running as the vehicle to reach women and help them find their fearless, create a community, a global community of women who talk to each other, regardless of their um, experience or their background. Um, I often say sometimes, you know, in life, you, you, you just need to know you're not alone out there. And indeed, when people are in a fearful situation or they're just too afraid to take that first step, if they have a friend that they can communicate with, uh, it makes all the difference. Well, how are they going to communicate? Well, you know, life has changed a lot since the, even the Olympic Games in 1984. I mean, the Internet, um, and, and cell phones, uh, mobile technology, even poor women have um, uh, an email and a mobile connection and um, are reaching each other and making things happen in a very, very, very active way and a very personal way. So what 261 Fearless is all about, it is, first of all, a movement. It's about women communicating with each other, about sharing um, their, their, their fears and their fearlessness. It's the vehicle of running because that is so instantly, uh, instantly empowering and, and um giving a sense of self-accomplishment. And how we're giving them that is by uh, giving them a series of clubs globally, um, training programs to teach women how to organize clubs and create a community of women um, about taking a new method of not necessarily being competitive, but of being empowered and enriched by each other and communicating with each other. Um, and uh, through sponsorship, uh, we have just signed uh, Reebok as our first uh, global sponsor. We're very, very excited about that to help us get the the message out there with a powerful website and um, in hopefully some branding of, of merchandise, but mostly of creating the clubs, of getting women to get together um, and have a direct touch. Um, and to get them ready for that, we offer something called 261 Train the Trainer, which is a very exciting way of showing you how to create a global women's community or even just 
the community of women running in your own neighborhood, in your own little town. Two or three women or two or three hundred women. And that's how it's happening. That's how it's happening. It's called 261 Fearless, Inc. And you can check us out on www.261fearless.org. And hashtag us at 261 Fearless. Uh, Catherine, maybe just get a little bit more uh, into the detail here. If I'm sitting in front of my little cell phone or, or whatever, but I have a browser capability, and I go to this website, then what would I click on? What am I looking for? Just, is, it, is there something that says start a chapter? Or um, uh, how specifically, very specifically, would someone get something going in, in their neighborhood? Sure. First of all, they probably want to say, what is the mission? What is the purpose? And they say, well, I believe in all of that. I run. I'd like to connect with another woman. How do you start a club? How do you take the training program to get yourself to doing the club? Where, where are some events where 261 is happening? Those are all on the website. They're different things, and it walks you through the steps to do it. Very good. Well, I know I loved, when I was looking over your website, I loved uh, the statement you made about putting one foot in front of your in, in front of the other. It's as simple as putting one foot in front of the other. I, mostly motivated by you, I completed seven marathons. I, I never was fast, but there was something unbelievable to me about running a distance that I never dreamed that I could run. So that, and, and that mentality, one foot in front of the other, uh, you know, don't look at how much there is yet ahead. Just can you do one foot in front of the other? Um, that's been a very powerful m- motto and a motif in my life. Um, what's this I hear that possibly something might be happening in Boston 2017? Maybe tell me a little bit about that. <laughs> oh, boy. You're going to get your shoes out and join me, Carol. Oh, I don't I think so. <laughs> but you're going <laughs> to do it, right? If I if I motivated you over your life, I'm I'm so so impressed because you are a highly motivated person yourself and have done so much. Well, can you imagine? Next year, 2017 is the 50th anniversary of the famous incident where the official attacked me in the race. And I told you I'd give you a quick punchline, but over the years, he and I eventually became best of friends. Um, and and because you know what. He may have attacked me in the Boston Marathon, but he created one of the biggest movements in social history of women's running because women were ignited and outraged by a picture that highly motivated them. And so we have to thank sometimes our worst enemies and they sometimes become our best friends. Um, and, and so next year, in celebration of that amazing incident and the change it has brought, I'm going to run the Boston Marathon um, again, and we would like you to invite you, Carol, and all of the listeners to come and get in shape, join me on the starting line of the Boston Marathon in 2017. We're going to have a fabulous promotion, and we are um, going to be working closely with our really good friends at the BAA, the Boston Athletic Association, who are going to be a part of this big promotion with us. It's going to be really, really amazing. Amazing. And I'm training my brains out. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you are. Well, okay, we've got about one minute left. Uh, Crystal ball question. Where do you think women's sport is going? Um, Will the next 10 or 20 years bring any breakthroughs that is going to be anything like the opening of the marathon? Absolutely it is, because more and more women are realizing that they have incredible 
and unlimited potential in endurance, stamina, flexibility, and balance. Men have had Olympic sports for 3,000 years. Women have had Olympic sports. Well, they've had the marathon for only, you know, 50 years. So what are the next 50 or 100 years going to look like? We're going to see a big transformation in sports where women are going to be applauded, revered, and have sports of their own that enhance their capabilities. This is not about men versus women, women versus men. It's about creating opportunities, about us working together and going down the road together. I, I, and I also throw this out there for people to think about, hey, how can you, a young person, make a difference? in sports management, sports creativity and journalism, and helping make those changes happen to create positive opportunities for global positive change for both men and women around the world. All right. Thank you so much, Catherine. And thanks to everyone for listening today. Next week, we're going to be talking with two women who are engaged in getting their own sports into the Olympic program, Pam Butler with Canoe and Robin Farina, a women's cycling road race. So see you then on Women in Sport, The Long Road Up, the Empowerment Channel. Thank you for listening to Women and Sport, The Long Road Up. Please join Carol Oglesby for another edition next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have an amazing week.